There is, as he promised, abundance available, not an abundance as it relates to health and wealth and social status, but an abundance of love and joy and peace and intimacy with the Father and life in the Spirit and resurrection power, and the list goes on. That those things that are so greater than worldly temporal rewards are available to us if only we're willing to reach out and take hold of them. If we're willing to do what's required of us to do, to walk that path, to embrace a certain sort of pain and suffering. Because with all those things I just mentioned, the love, the joy, the peace, the life in the spirit, the intimacy with the Father, the resurrection power specifically, there's a suffering and death that go before the power of the resurrection. We're told that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Hey, we are in the sixth week of our series entitled Normal Christian Life. It's been an incredible series thus far. As I've said a couple times, my favorite series uh, that we've done. I started it off with the first two Sundays. Uh, Pastor Jordan had the last three, and I'm going to hit here the last two, uh, starting today and the next Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday. We'll tie that up right before we head into Easter. If you've missed any messages in this series, highly encourage you to go back and check them out. Uh, definitely worthwhile. Uh, last Sunday... Uh, at the beginning of his message, Pastor Jordan asked if there, were anybody, if there was anybody in the room who would ever run a half marathon. And there were a couple hands that went up. I can't remember how many, a few. Uh, then he asked if there had been anybody that had run a marathon. Uh, there was only one hand that went up in the room, uh, and that was my hand. Uh, but there's actually a caveat to that where I actually haven't technically run a marathon uh, what I ran instead, as I've mentioned a couple years ago, was an ultra marathon. So if you don't know what an ultra marathon is, it's any distance uh, that is 31 and a half miles uh, or greater. And generally, these are off-road type of races. Uh, they're run on trails out in the middle of nowhere. They're not uh, road races by any stretch. The one that I ran uh, is called the Boonville uh, Backroads Ultra out in Boonville, and it's 31 and a half miles, only two miles of which is flat. Uh, the rest of it is constantly rolling hills. Uh, it's an incredible race. The distance I ran was the 50K, which is uh, 31.55 miles, uh, but there were people that were running 100K. There were people that were running a 75-mile version, and then people that were running a 100-mile uh, version and people came for the 100 mile version. As you might imagine, the ultra running community is a pretty small community, uh, and that's part of why I like it. So, you know, the Des Moines Marathon draws roughly between the half and the full 15,000 participants every year. The race I ran, uh, there were 75 of us, uh, and that was from uh, I believe it was uh, our race, I think, had 12 to 15 different states. The 100 mile race had uh, 75 participants. And it was from like 30 plus states. So people traveled all over, uh, from all over the country to do these races. You might be asking yourself why uh, somebody would ever travel to run 100 miles. Uh, and I mean, that's a question I've asked myself many times. Uh, the reason that I got into it uh, is because I'm nuts. Um, 
And that's just the kind of thing that I do. So my mentality, uh, I played all the traditional sports growing up and even into college. And then after that, I got into some like just odd stuff. I wanted to see if I could push myself, uh, you know, to find new challenges. So I did everything from uh, mixed martial arts to uh, triathlons and I hadn't, didn't know how to swim. <laughs> and so uh, in January of 2010, I had never run more than a mile in my life. I had never cycled more than like just pedaling around when I was a kid and I didn't know how to swim. Uh, so I figured uh, doing a triathlon would be great. Uh, and so and that was interesting. I still, still tell people of all the things I've ever done athletically, learning how to swim, like actually like Olympic style swimming, like the side breathing and all that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I do not like feeling like I'm drowning. And if you don't know how to swim and you're trying to do that, you're going to swallow a lot of water and you're going to feel like you're drowning. And it's just, you know, I try to be this big, tough guy with tattoos and I'm in this pool and I'm just flailing everywhere and people are checking to see if I'm okay. But I learned how to swim. Uh, and then, and so that was January, 2010. And then in August, 2010, I did a half Ironman triathlon. Um, so I like doing that stuff. I got into powerlifting and then I thought, what's, what else could I do? Lots of people can run a marathon. Let me try this ultra marathon thing. And, and it was a lot of fun. Um, I was very broken afterwards. Uh, had a couple toenails turn completely black and, and pop off and all that kind of stuff. Exciting things. But there's this other, so I've been, a year ago, I was thinking, uh, you know, it had been, it had been a, some years and some pounds since I had run the ultra marathon. And I felt like maybe, you know, I could, a new challenge. So I was looking for like, what's a new challenge? What's a crazy thing that people are doing now? And I was thinking about running uh, just because you can jump out your front door, especially with stuff going on with COVID last year at this time. You can jump out your front door and you can just take off on a run. And I came across this uh, sport, th this, this new running event that I'd never heard of. And uh, these were called last man standing races. Has anybody ever heard of a, a last man standing race or read about it at all? So a last man standing race, it's a newer thing. And it basically has uh, the sort of the following format, okay? The, the most famous one right now is called Bob's Big Backyard Ultra. And uh, it's down in Tennessee. And it works like this. It's held on like kind of like a, a ranch slash farm. And everybody lines up at 6.30 a.m. Uh, first thing in the morning, every participant. And it's a four-mile loop, okay? So you take off at 6.30 a.m. And you have to run four miles in a loop that leads you back. And then you have to be standing at the starting line again at 7.30. And then you run again. And then 8.30. And then 9.30. And then 10.30. So you have an hour to complete a four-mile run, which is a lot of time, right? But you've got to time it out in such a way that you're, like, you're pacing yourself, but you have some time to rest, but not too much because you, know, you don't want to, like, get all done and not want to get back up. And you have to be at the starting line. And then they just keep going until everybody's done and there's one person standing, right? And that one person standing, then if nobody shows up but that person to the starting line, generally speaking, if that person completes a lap, then they win, they win. last man standing. Sounds like fun, huh? So these races are crazy. Um, there's a gal, Courtney DeWalter. She's considered probably the greatest uh, women's ultra runner in history. Uh, two years ago in 2019, she, in a four-mile four loops, she ran 283 miles, 283 miles. Uh, last year, uh, 2020, uh, Courtney didn't enter it. There was a new gal that entered it, and she became the first woman to win the whole thing overall. 
she beat all the men as well. Now, she ran a little bit less. She ran 250 miles, uh, which took her 60 hours. So you can imagine that. You're just, you're not, and you're not, I mean, you're getting little sleep here and there if you can time it right, but you're running four-mile loops for 60 hours. Sounds, to me, honestly, I, I love the idea of that, but um, I know that's weird. Like I said, I, just weird stuff, but um, I just love, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, so she had one mindset as she came into the, the race uh, in 2020. Her name was Maggie Gutterall, and she's the one that won 250 miles, and her her mentality was simply this. It was don't quit. Easier said than done, right? It was don't quit. And here's what she said in an interview she gave with Runner's World. She said, the winner of last year's race told me that he told himself that he was just not going to quit in 2018, which took out the decision-making process for him during the race. If you let the idea stew, then you might drop but if you take this single-minded focus, you can just be confident that you're going to win because if you don't drop out, you win. Here's a, here's a reality. If you're taking notes or you want to take a picture, here's kind of a quote to start the morning besides the one that Maggie said there. You know, if you're going to run an ultra, if you're going to run an ultra race, if you're going to run, do a half Ironman triathlon, if you're going to run a last man standing race, you know going into this race that you're going to suffer. It is a fact. There's absolutely no question about it, but you're willing to embrace the pain because you've made a value judgment. You've decided that the reasons you have for running the race outweigh the pain and suffering that are promised to you as a result of giving it everything you have. Right, this will come as a surprise to exactly no one this morning, but we live in what is primarily a pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding culture. And this isn't some detached observation I've made, like I'm above it. It's as real for me as it is for the most hedonistic, gluttonous person in our society. Right, like anyone else, I'd prefer not to experience pain. And not only would I like to avoid pain, but more specifically, I'd like to avoid perpetual pain, uh, which we typically define or refer to as suffering. And as is common for most everyone, all of us in here, I'm guessing, can relate. I've had times in my life where I've known great pain. And I've had times and seasons in my life where I've suffered. None of these stretches were particularly enjoyable. In fact, they were almost entirely awful. And I know, again, that everyone in here can relate on some level. If you've been breathing for more than a couple of years and have a consciousness, you've had pain, you've had suffering. And I know that all of you, because you're human, have had to deal with this in various forms at one time or another. And I also know uh, that some of you, maybe many of you, uh, showed up here this morning in the midst of a painful ordeal that you're going through. You showed up this morning in the midst of suffering. So when I say that pain and suffering generally just flat out stink, you can relate right here, right now, in the present tense. So with that being said, what makes pain and suffering all that much more difficult to endure is when it feels pointless, right? We talked earlier, just a few minutes ago, about this willingness to enter into pain and suffering because you understand that you've made this value judgment. But when 
you have pain and suffering that feels pointless, it, just, it can seem as though we're being tortured without cause. When it appears that some random accident or environmental factor has taken us out, that's when pain and suffering can turn into misery. Misery is the sort of suffering that holds us hostage against our will. But that's not the sort of pain I want to discuss this morning. So I explain all that because I want you to think differently than about that. Don't put that pain and suffering into the category I'm talking about this morning. I want you to think of the rest of this message this morning as sort of the beginning of a thought, or if you were taking a class in college, and maybe it was primarily a class that was a brief lecture, then discussion, and there's a certain amount of time allotted for each class period, whether it's 45 minutes or whatever, and the professor does his best to get through as many of his thoughts as he can while still allowing for discussion, and then you sort of say, okay, the bell rings or whatever, and we'll, keep, we'll pick this up. Uh, the next time. Think of it this way. This will, think of it that way, I'm sorry. It will come to a, a sort of natural uh, end, but there's more next week that goes along with this that will coincide with that, okay? Just think of it that way. So in Isaiah 53, we read about Jesus, probably the most famous prophetic passage in the Old Testament. We read this. It says, after he has suffered, he will see the fruit of his suffering and be satisfied. Let me read that again. After he has suffered, he will see the fruit of his suffering, and he will be satisfied. Now, this is a prophetic promise regarding the cross and the resurrection, but I do think that it could be applied to us on a number of different levels. You see, when we put pain and suffering in the context of something we want to take hold of, it becomes far more tolerable, amen? Agree? becomes far more tolerable. When we do that, we may even begin to, to view the pain as worthwhile. And maybe, just maybe, we might go so far as to embrace the pain and to welcome it as a signpost that we are making progress on the path that we've chosen to walk. It actually becomes a marker it actually helps cultivate an awareness in us that we are headed the right direction. I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but I have, where there's a pain, but it almost becomes, and I'm not going to say it's joyful because it's not joyful, but it certainly isn't depressing or saddening either. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But when we get to this final stage where you welcome it as a signpost, when you get there, pain loses its power over us so far as being a deterrent in any meaningful way is concerned. You experience it, but you recognize it's part of the deal, and it's not going to cause you to shrink back. It's not going to cause you from ceasing to move forward. It's not going to cause you to stop going after what you're going after. And when you have that sort of victory over pain, it has no power over you anymore, and there's a level of freedom that that can bring that is very few people, very few people, will ever reach. Lots of reasons for that, which we'll touch on a bit here again today. Now, this doesn't mean when you have this sort of victory over it, when you can welcome it, it doesn't mean that you don't feel it. It's still pain, and you recognize it as such, 
But it does mean that you are so laser focused on your destination or your objective that doing anything other than walking straight towards that is no longer a viable option. You have taken quitting out off of the table. You have eliminated that as an option. Quitting is no longer something that you will consider. And you know in your heart of hearts, deep down within, that if you don't quit, you win. Pain becomes something, something that simply comes with taking the territory, so to speak, that you're wanting to take. The truth is that everyone wants what feels good. Everyone wants to live a carefree, happy, and easy life. Everybody wants that because it's easy to like that. I mean, who wouldn't? But if I ask you, what do you want out of life? You really think about it, and your answer is something along the lines of, well, I want to be happy and have a great family and a, a job I like. Honestly, that answer is so cliche and so abstract that it means absolutely nothing. It doesn't tell me anything about you. I want to be happy and have a great family and a job that I like. There's, it's so blasé. A more interesting question to me a question that perhaps you've never considered before is this. It's going to be on the screen. What pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for? What pain do you want in your life? Or what are you willing to struggle for? That's a more interesting question. Because the answer to that right there is a far greater determinant of whether or not we and you will be obedient to Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of God. What pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for as it pertains to seeking first the kingdom? Why is that a more interesting question? Why is that so important? There are many reasons we're going to explore here the next few minutes, some of which are a handful of promises that Jesus gave his disciples and us that don't get a lot of airtime most Sunday mornings in most churches. And probably for good reason. Let's look at one. This is probably not a refrigerator magnet that you have, or a bumper sticker, I'm guessing, or even a life verse. And I, I say that Honestly, almost in seriousness, it is funny. But at the same time, this was also a promise. John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. Pretty straightforward. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That's a promise, my friends. If you're going to pursue Jesus and walk his path and genuinely come after him and genuinely seek the kingdom first above all things, there are incredible blessings and joy overflowing that are a result of that. Now, blessings, not in the traditional sense of what you usually hear from a televangelist per se, 
There are blessings that are deeper than anything by far beyond that. But there is also sorrows. There's also pain. There's also hatred from the world. There's also persecution that are promised to you if you're going to follow the path of Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more even next week. But let me issue this point of clarification as we go forward this morning. And I put this on the screen because I think it's super important for you to understand. Okay? There are many self-identified Christians who are hated by the world for all the wrong reasons. So what I don't want anybody to have this morning is some, to hear what I'm saying and, and let it build up some sort of self-righteousness in you. Or if you're at home or anybody that ends up listening to this, what I don't want you to think is, you know what, all my neighbors hate me. That must be a sign that I'm living for Jesus. It's very possible that's not true. It could just be because you are a self-righteous jerk. And that you have taken things that have nothing to do with the kingdom and you've tried to force those into kingdom language and tell people, you know, and I could name a bunch of things and I'll upset everybody in here, but I'll probably refrain from that at least for now. It might accidentally slip out later, but it, it, it is, I see this way too often. I see this way too often where people are like, oh, I'll give you an example, okay? So I was at a conference in 2012, amazing conference with amazing uh, people from all, church leaders from all over the world. And that's what I really prefer to do is have a global perspective. And I got to be a part of this session with a world-renowned theologian and author and professor. And there was just a handful of pastors that got chosen to be a part of this. And it wasn't by merit. It was just kind of coincidental. But anyway, we have an opportunity to talk to this. These older guys been through so much. Brilliant guy. We have the opportunity to ask all these questions, you know, of him and there were a whole bunch of pastors in there that started complaining about the level of persecution they were going through here in the States and how their neighbors hated them, just hated them, and it was so oppressive because they wouldn't drink a beer with their neighbor. And I was like, guys, there are people at this conference who risk their life every day for the gospel, and you're like so oppressed because your neighbors make fun of you because you won't drink a beer. I'm just like, come on, okay? And I'm not saying that's... What, there are lots of self-identified Christians who are hated by the world for all the wrong reasons. It's because they're doing the opposite, the opposite of everything that Jesus told us to do. Example A, Jesus, uh, Paul writes that he has been given and we have been given what's called the ministry of reconciliation. Because Christ was in the world reconciling it to himself through his blood. And Paul defines the ministry of reconciliation as this not counting the world's sins against it. There are lots of Christians, that's literally all they do. Literally all they do is count the world's sins against it. If you're hated for that, you should be. You are not preaching the gospel. You are preaching pharisaical righteousness at best, which I would say is a, is a demonic agenda. Okay, and I'm, this is me holding back, by the way, right now, <laughs> which is concerning. Okay, let's move on before it uh, gets dangerous in here. So here's a true statement that deserves full acceptance, since Jesus used to say that. People will only walk into pain and suffering for one of two reasons, generally speaking. Number one, if the lesser pain will prevent a greater pain. 
Think of a necessary surgery that you have to have. You know that the surgery is necessary. Surgery, I've had three of them. They're not pleasant. Uh, very painful recovery, oftentimes. But you know that that's necessary because if you don't do that, the pain's going to get a lot worse and more severe. Or think about somebody that has recently had uh, you know, a heart attack from which obviously they survived, and the doctor says, well, you need to start eating you know, only fruits and vegetables and lean meats and all that stuff, which is suffering, honestly. <laughs> suffering. So they're like, but I'm willing to do that because I really don't want to die of a heart attack, right? So they'll enter into that pain uh, if it prevents a greater pain. Number two, if they have something they consider worth the pain, uh, you know, women... Uh, you know, the Bible even talks about this, but uh, labor pains, right? You understand that you, when you have, uh, when you get pregnant, there's going to be a whole lot of stuff that goes with that. Discomfort through the pregnancy, obviously the birth itself, generally less than pleasant from what I've heard. <laughs> but, you're, but you're willing to do that, you know, because you understand that having a child is this thing that you want. And, you know, inexplicably, you forget about the pain and you want to do it again, um, you know, or... Something as simple as we talked about this morning as running a race or whatever goal it might be, you might be willing to enter into some kind of pain if you consider it worth it. So why do I ask this question? You know, this question of what pain do you want in your life? Well, we could throw that back up there again. What pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for? Why do I ask these questions in the midst of this series, The Normal Christian Life? Because you probably feel at this point like, what is he talking about today? He hasn't gotten to anything specific about the normal Christian life, and we'll get there here shortly, but... The reason I ask this question in the midst of this series is because this series uh, is born of, of a deep, deep conviction in Pastor Jordan and I, that when it comes to the life of a disciple of Jesus, that something better is available for us than what has been modeled and passed down, generally speaking, to us. And what, for various reasons, we, because we have ownership and culpability in this too, but what, what for various reasons we have settled for, what we've allowed to be normal. For too long now, the, the, the entire ethos of Christianity in the West has been one of consumerism, and consumerism is mostly about seeking pleasure and comfort and avoiding pain. As a philosophy, now this spirit of consumerism is a logical extension of the hyper-individualism that dominates our secular culture because if it's all about you, then it's going to be about you seeking pleasure and, pleasure and comfort. And that's, so anywhere you go, anywhere what you do, no matter what it is, that's what you're going to go after. So you become a consumer seeking pleasure, comfort, and avoiding pain. Now, to be clear, again, another clarification, to be clear, the problem is not... Okay, not that the secular culture subscribes to an ethic that is absolutely antithetical to the kingdom of God. They are, after all, secular. Okay, that's not the problem. Fine, you want to be a secular hedonist and just go on pleasure cruises and do whatever you want? Go for it. Okay, that's, why wouldn't you? Because the, the after is not going to be great, so you might as well get all you can get now. The problem is not that. The problem is that Jesus followers have allowed themselves to be co-opted by this ethic. And it's so deep inside of us that, man, it's, it's troubling. And I see it in myself. And it's why I preach so 
furiously at times against it in a good way. But in the name, you know, this is a problem. And then in the name of not wanting to lose membership, you know, church leaders have ultimately followed suit and have acquiesced to the so-called felt needs of their congregation. Far be it from anybody in the church to have to have it experience a bit of discomfort, to have to suffer a bit. This whole idea, this will only a few nerds will get this, but this whole Cartesian philosophy idea of I think I, there, I think I need and therefore I need approach has produced exactly what Jesus said it would. We've gained the world and we've lost our souls. Not only our souls, but also the prophetic witness and transformational power that the early church was known for, which Pastor Jordan addressed the past couple of Sundays. As I mentioned just a second ago, though, we deeply believe that when it comes to following Jesus, there is a more. There is, as he promised, abundance available, not an abundance as it relates to health and wealth and social status, but an abundance of love and joy and peace and intimacy with the Father, and life in the Spirit, and resurrection power, and the list goes on. That those things that are so greater than worldly temporal rewards are available to us if only we're willing to reach out and take hold of them. If we're willing to do what's required of us to do, to walk that path, to embrace a certain sort of pain and suffering. Because with all those things I just mentioned, the love, the joy, the peace, the life in the spirit, the intimacy with the Father, the resurrection power specifically. There's a suffering and death that go before the power of the resurrection. We're told that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He instead submitted himself to the will of the Father knowing as Abraham had first believed so many thousands of years earlier, that there was power to raise the dead. The challenge for us as little Christs, as little Jesuses, is to both testify and to personify the realities of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we do that by modeling him, and one of the things he modeled over and over and over again from his birth onward was by not hesitating to go lower still. By not being afraid to leave behind that which we cannot keep to gain that which we cannot lose. By willingly entering in to pain for the sake of the kingdom. Okay, I'm gonna start throwing a lot of slides at you, a lot of things, and we're just gonna go through these. Talk more about this. What I just said, Paul, uh, reiterates uh, or he, he testifies to in Philippians 3 verses 8 and 10 where he says this regarding his past and so many things he left behind. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I love this, and count them as rubbish. Other translations say, count them as garbage. Some even say, count them as filth. All those things that I've lost that I used to value so highly, all those things that I have gave up for the sake of the gospel and for pursuing the kingdom and walking the path of Jesus, 
It was painful at one time, but now they're just rubbish. They're just trash. They're just filth. They're nothing. In order that I may gain Christ, I want to know Christ. Yes, the, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here's a true statement. If you want the benefits of something, you have to also want the costs. If you want the benefits of something, you have to also want the costs. Now we're going to shift gears just slightly for a second here. That same conference I mentioned earlier where the pastor was complaining about the persecution he was undergoing, there was a pastor there. I've mentioned him a time or two before. Pastor Jordan uh, ran into him in a super weird set of circumstances when he was in Israel. He happened to be there preaching at the, te uh, the Temple Mount, right? That's where he was at. This guy's one of my heroes, and I unashamedly say that. I'm jealous for him and the Lord in terms of his relationship with God and what God's done through him and what he's gotten to see in terms of the spread of the gospel. This, at one point, this guy was on ISIS's uh, top 10 hit list because he's a pastor of a church uh, in Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world. And he came to this little tiny conference, and it's a whole crazy story that I can't go into, but he came to this little tiny conference in the middle of nowhere, and somebody even asked him, like, why are you here, you know? But it was an interesting question. We had a little Q&A with him. And somebody asked him, could you tell us, Pastor Philip, could you tell us uh, the primary difference between what you see as Christianity in the West and then what you see Christianity in Indonesia and Eastern Asia and the East in general and Middle East where you travel? Like, what are the prim what's the primary difference? If you could nail it down to one thing, West versus East, what is it? I'll never, ever forget this as long as I live. This is what he said. He said, in America, Christians line up to be blessed by God. In Indonesia and Eastern Asia, Christians line up to suffer for God. Guys, that's a significant difference. That is a significant difference difference that I cannot even put words to, that I can't quantify, that if I tell you a thousand different stories of the persecuted church all around the world, that it still wouldn't like kind of just be able to sum it up or get a hold of it. It's a deep, deep difference. One of the best things I've heard to even attempt to sum it up is something John Mark McMillan says in one of his songs, he says this, everybody is calling for a covenant, but nobody's drawing blood. And he's speaking, he, that song specifically, he's speaking about Christianity in the West. Everybody's calling for a covenant, but nobody's drawing blood. Let me just start to talk about a few examples of what I mean. And this is not intended, this is not intended to, to do any sort of shaming or anything of that nature, but this series has been about one thing, basically, at its core. It's been saying that the first 300 years of Christianity, the first three centuries, what was normal then has now become incredibly rare. What was an exception, or what was, what was the rule back then has now become an exception at best. As Watchman Nee said, by the time the average Christian gets their temperature up to normal, everybody else thinks that they have a fever, so it's been about taking a hard look, not at how we relate to our neighbors, not even how we relate to each other, but how 
we relate as a 2021 Christian, Jesus-following church compared to the first three centuries. And let's look and compare and contrast. And are there things that maybe we've missed out on that maybe we should take from them? (laughs) We have a lot to learn maybe in reflecting. So here's one little thing I'm going to throw out among a couple. Here's a fact, okay? I did a bunch of research on this. Over the course of their lifetime, the average Christian in the West won't share the gospel with a single person. That's a fact. Now, if those of you that like math like I do, you'll understand that how can their average be zero, right? Well, if you take, let's just say you surveyed 100,000 Christians and you asked them, have you ever shared the gospel with anybody? There's going to be a bunch of different answers, right? Some may be on the far end. Maybe they shared it with 100. And then there's people you can't go lower than zero, right? So they've shared it with zero. But if you take those numbers and you plot them out starting with zero and you, and you take every individual answer and you plot it on the continuum until you get to the high point and then you find the mean, right? You go to the center of it, you're going to find a zero. Does that make sense? So the average Christian, the dominant portion of the answers given show that the average Christian in the West won't share the gospel with a single person. Why is that? Gosh, that's a whole other sermon let's take a look at Acts 20, 22 through 24. This is Paul writing. And now compelled by the Spirit. I was Paul speaking, I'm sorry. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The average Christian in America will share the gospel with not a single person. The Apostle Paul went into a city knowing for a fact that he'd be thrown in prison, among other things, if you read his sort of like laundry list of things he endured, but he didn't care because nothing else mattered aside from sharing the gospel. Acts 5, 40 through 42. This is the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Flogging, by the way, not pleasant. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What did I say earlier about there can be a point you reach where pain no longer has power over you. It's no longer a deterrent. And in fact, you can actually welcome it as a signpost that you're on the path. They were flogged, a horrible way of being beaten. And yet they left rejoicing. They had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, after being beaten and threatened, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Another fact. This is a staggering one. 40% of those who attend church on a regular basis give no money to their church. 40%. 
Imagine if you just tried to go to like Jordan Creek to see some, a movie and you just came week after week and you never paid. Not that it's the same thing. But you would never think about doing that, right? 40% of those who attend church on a regular basis give no money to their church. Acts 4, 32 through 35 says this, and all the believers when one heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 40% of those in America who attend church on a regular basis consider themselves church members, Jesus followers, give no money to their church. Francis Chan said this, a believer from a house church in Iran explained that people who want to join the church have to sign a written statement agreeing to lose their property, be thrown in jail, and be martyred for their faith. Many Christians are arrested in Iran and either executed or imprisoned for years. Oh, and Iran has the fastest growing evangelical population in the world. What if we set that as our standard? Think the numbers might shrink a bit? Here's a statement. The reality is that in America, our Christianity costs us very little. And the result is that we've gotten exactly what we've paid for. Fact is, over the past 15 to 20 years, the focus of Christianity, the, I shouldn't say the locus, sorry, L-O-C-U-S, I probably wrote that wrong, but the locus of Christianity, the center point of it, has shifted away from the West, for the most part, and we fail to take notice of this in the West. We, we fail to think that we have anything to learn from the believers in China, Africa, the Middle East, etc., Revelation 3, 14 through 18. Written to the church in Laodicea, but somewhat apropos for the church in the West today. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. It's Jesus speaking, if you didn't know. I know your deeds. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Here's the part that really, I think, relates to the West. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear you should, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Mm-hmm.